Welcome to the Not So Average Joe <laughs> podcast. Um, why don't you introduce yourself? Give us uh, your your name, maybe a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and uh, we'll dig into your story. My name's Dave Bittenbender, and I'm originally born in New York, and uh, I moved from New York to Boston and spent my high school years in Boston, and. Uh, then moved to Pennsylvania. I went to Penn State College for a period of time and then moved back to Boston, went to Boston College. And then after that, moved to San Diego, California, in Del Mar, California. And I lived in Del Mar, California for just about 15 years before I moved to here in Georgia. And um, I've been living here ever since. Nice. Yeah. So that's a big change from San Diego to, to Atlanta. It's a huge contrast. <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of that to this day where people are saying, how can you leave San Diego for Georgia or Atlanta and things like that? And it's hard. It is different. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of things about Atlanta that some people don't necessarily or people who've grown up here can't always appreciate, and it's the fact that it's such a booming city. The contrast between, like, for example, um, the cuisine in San Diego is there's a lot of taco stands and things like that. There's, there's, great, uh, there's great food to be had in Southern California for sure, but there's such a diverse... Um, range yeah. of cuisines and restaurants here in, in Atlanta. It's so cool. Like, and they're constantly opening new ones because the demand is there. There's so much to do. I call it like the little hidden gym, though, because it has it has everything. You've got every sports team. You've got the diversity of food. You've got... And like 15 minutes away, you're out in like beautiful nature and exactly. trees. You feel like you're like 100 miles away from the city. Exactly. And you can drive straight into downtown in 20 minutes park for free half the time and just do whatever you want you know as right. opposed to like chicago or la or some of these right. cities where it's like you it's killer just to enjoy what they have you know exactly. so i love atlanta exactly it's cool and you talk about the sports scene for example i mean atlanta they have all the major sports teams yeah and everything. san diego just lost the chargers to los angeles so yeah. now san diego really just kind of has the san diego padres they don't even have a football team anymore yeah so you know all the major sporting i mean not just major league but minor league sports are here in atlanta too mm-hmm. so there's so much to be had and atlanta is just such a, a it's it's such a fun city so it doesn't bother me and then for all the athletics that I do, it, I do miss the ocean. That's the one aspect. I did a lot of training in the ocean back in San Diego because I was right there, and that's what a lot of There's a very large aquatic um, presence, and, and there's a large uh, aquatic scene to be had uh, for athletes who, who compete in not, not just aquatics, but even, for example, triathlon. It, San Diego is the triathlon capital of the world for training. It's a, okay. mecca for tra- it's a mecca for training for triathlon, for cyclists, for all different types of sports. So let, let's dig into your athletic background and, and really let's start, I guess, where you're at right now and then we'll kind of catch up how yeah. you got there. Cause so, so you're training to go compete in, in worlds right now. Yeah. For, for it's it's called a what dragon boat. Dragon boat. You know, yeah. most people probably have never heard of dragon boat, but we've heard of rowing, we've heard of canoeing. So, and that's why it gets confused. I just kind of I don't. Sometimes I just don't explain it to people. I go, yeah, it's rowing or it's canoe and kayak because it really is. It's it's so much. So many of those different disciplines all fall into the same trait in terms of. Um, they're, they're still aquatic events. They're still done in either a canoe or a kayak. There's just different forms of canoes and kayaks. Yeah. That's one of the things that you have to dig a little bit deeper into. When most right. people just think in, in the Olympics, every four years they see you know a row of guys yeah. sitting there you know doing the, the yeah. rowing, I think is where most people, that's where I first heard of sure. rowing stuff sure. was more the Olympics. 
Um, so this is a little different than the Olympic rowing? It or is. It is okay. a little bit different. And so the difference is that, you know, in, in the Olympics every four years, you'll see rowing is the most prominent, and then there's also still canoe and kayak events. Mm-hmm. And the one thing about, you know, especially if you're watching the Olympics now, those type of sports, quite frankly, really don't get the coverage that the more major sports do in terms of gymnastics, track sure. and field. And that's just the way it is. You know, especially in the United States, the United States is not necessarily a mecca for the aquatic sports. Sports. The aquatic sports are really so popular in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and Russia and and so many of those. Because is it's that just where they started, tradition. or why is that? Um, I think yeah. I mean, it does have a. It uh, definitely has a, a heritage that goes back more into the European uh, regions and and Eastern Europe too, especially canoe and kayak. Um, uh, the United States has always been take has always taken it on. For example, um, in rowing. In Boston, there's the Head of the Charles, which is one of the most popular collegiate rowing events in the world. Okay. And uh, But that's that's with everybody. That's with Harvard, Yale. And that's kind of what you think, too. Maybe a little bit in the south, in, in our southeastern region, too, rowing doesn't always get the attention. It's just not as popular as it is up north with the Ivy League colleges and, and the more yeah. colleges. And then in the, in the west coast, USC and, and other um prominent universities like that have rowing and again in the west coast it's very prominent as well here in the southeast it's a little bit different so it doesn't always get the attention that um it that it it not much different than cycling for example i used to be a professional cyclist and cycling is just huge in europe it's really not as popular here so dragon boat is kind of in in that same aspect where dragon boat it's actually the second most participated sport in the world next really? to soccer yeah. okay second yeah most part- second most participated sport yeah most world. of americans i guess or you know, have never even heard of it at least by that term so so dragon boat how many people are on the boat like that are rowing at a time there's a there's different there's different dragon boats where there's primarily either 10 people or okay. 20 people okay so it's 20. a big boat yeah and wow. so that's and they're lined up one one right next to another and so there's either 10 or there's 20 and the races are very short uh, the shortest race is only 200 meters which basically takes about 47 seconds or so and you participate in a lot of the shorter distances right I participate in all the distances all the distances yeah. oh, cool. I'd like to think that I'm a little bit more specified I'm a little bit better at the shorter distances than the longer distances um, the shorter distances like 200 meter again which is about a 47 second race 500 meter which is just under a two-minute race, those are still sprint races. You know, they still require a lot of endurance, strength, power, everything. After that, the 1,000 meters and the 2,000-meter events, those are a little bit longer. They acquire a little bit more endurance than they do the strength and the power And you do all of it. But I still like to do all of it. So how does little Dave, growing up as a kid, become a, a, you know, world competitor in in dragon boat racing it again kind of fell into my lap and it's a chain of events so when i i guess when i was 12 years old i started racing bicycles and um i i saved up i i worked in this one woman's yard mowing her grass and picking weeds all summer and this is in boston this was back in boston yeah so i just moved from new york to boston and um 
I was I wanted a BMX bike so bad, and so I just saved up my money and got a BMX bike. And then one day, my dad brought home this flyer, and he said, "Hey, just up the road in Hopkinton, Hopkinton, Massachusetts. That's actually the start of the Boston Marathon. That's oh, where the cool. Boston Marathon starts. There was a little BMX track run by the YMCA. He goes, "Hey, you know, you've got this bike. Do you want to go and race it? You want to try it?" I go, "Yeah, I'll try it." And I loved it. And my dad actually really was excited that I was excited about it. So he kept taking me to these bike races. And that's how I got started into bike racing. And it took And you were just 12, 13 I was just 12. I was 12 years old. And believe it or not, I was, I was about the same height as I am now. I'm six foot four. And yeah, you're a big guy. High. You guys can't see him, but he, he's got a dominant <laughs> presence. Now, how old are you right now? I'm 48. So you're 48, but he, he's jacked. I wish you guys no. could see him. We'll post a picture. But, but yeah... Tall, very well fit, um, doing your thing, and so so you were big even as a kid. Yeah, uh, my dad was six foot two. I have uh, second cousins in my family that were six foot ten. So that was the thing at the time. I was already about six foot four, and um, the doctors were saying, "Well, yeah, your your child has a, a chance of getting to six ten, seven two. Wow. So basketball. Were they pushing? Was I was going to say, were they? Yeah. I was going to say, is he going to be excited about BMX? I think he'd be like, no, get the know, yeah, basketball. They, you know, that's what they thought. But I was. So excited about bike racing when I when I got introduced to it, I just stuck with it, and so I, I started racing bicycles for a few years in that aspect, and, and up to like fourteen, fifteen, and I started playing basketball too. But quite frankly, I really wasn't that good at basketball. I really I wasn't good at uh, it, I just I wasn't excited about basketball. I wasn't yeah. excited about baseball and football. I did all those other sports, but I just kept coming back to bike racing. It was it was it was the most fun I, I was having out of all those other sports. Plus. I had a lot of friends in that sport. It was just a um, it was just a sport that attracted a lot of people who I think were really similar to myself in, in terms of um, just the relationships that I was able to build and, and hang on to through, during that period of time. What do you think it was that attracted you to more of like a, would you consider it more of a solo sport? Or would you it's say, a solo sport. What attracted you to that more than like the team competitor sports that... Because because like the results the results that I earned were my results they weren't I didn't have to lose because a teammate didn't do a certain thing and I did right. a certain thing right a teammate didn't so that was kind of the appeal to me too it's like well it's all and you know it's all up to me you know I either win it all or I lose it you all felt like and it was in your hands else. your control and you like that. I can't, yeah I do I mean that's just it you take responsibility for your own actions and um, you get what you get you know you can't really point at a teammate and um, blame anybody else so. And it was just, um, I just, I just liked it. You know, it, was just, it just kind of fell into my lap again that um, I was trying, I was, I was succeeding in this sport. I was definitely getting better. I, I definitely had ground to make up. Because the bicycles are smaller, I think you have a little bit more of an advantage to be a, a little shorter athlete for with sure. a better sort of center of gravity. Because it's not just a drag race. It's just not point A, point B. Um, BMX bicycle racing at the time, it was a lot of turns. It was mm-hmm. in the dirt. So there was a lot of skill and balance and control that was definitely a big factor in winning or losing races. So for yeah. me, you know, making turns with my large center of gravity wasn't always the easiest. And I had to have an extra long bike, special custom made for me by my sponsors at the time. And so things like that. So what age did you get sponsored then? I was starting to get sponsored right around the age of 14, 15. Oh, and that's I was fun. racing a national circuit. 
and it was cool. I actually, quite frankly, I, I started missing a bit of school, and there would be tutors that would be on the road with me to help me keep up with my studies. And, and your folks were cool with that and they supported loved it. that? Yeah, they loved it. Did they, like, help you with connections? Like, how does a 14-year-old go and, like, get sponsored? My dad was definitely a big part of helping yeah. me with that. He was um, he was head of logistics for Xerox, at the, um, for, for Xerox copiers, which oh, is cool. one of the reasons why I was born in New York. Their, their headquarters was in Rochester, New York. So he was a smart guy. He... My dad got a master's degree in, in computer science, and he taught finance. And Was he athletically so, competitive as well? It's funny. He was, um, he, technically, yes. He was actually a bowler. He was actually a, a, <laughs> top, a top bowler in Ohio. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, I can't say that bowlers aren't athletes. I mean, who am I to say like that, anything like that? But, you know, it's a, def, it's a different kind of game. It's a game of skill, and there's still a lot of pressure. Sure. It's up to you. There's no teammates involved. It's bowl. definitely you not know the what first I mean? thing that comes to someone's mind. Oh, this guy's yeah, an athlete. Exactly. You know, and, I mean, I can't sit here and say those guys sure. aren't athletes, but it's different. That's like golf. There's an argument. There's an argument in terms of are NASCAR racers true athletes? Are golfers? Yeah, they true just athletes? sit there the whole they time, right? There. Yeah, Come but that's on. a that's a tough sport. I mean, that's yeah. a, I mean, that's there's a lot of factors involved, including death. You know, those guys can have to deal with. So I, you know, who I never make judgment over what's who's an athlete and who's not. I just, you know, I kind of leave that be. But um, yeah, he was he was definitely instrumental in in finding helping me find sponsors showing me how to write letters and resumes and things like that that's and cool so that that helped me a lot and so during that time you know that was when i was now i'm in high school and i i the 80 well the 84 olympics were here in the united states in los angeles and i was actually on the road and i was just this magazine rack and there was this magazine bicycling magazine and I looked at it, and there was cycling, and not just cycling, but the velodrome, the track, the oval race track that you can see. That's like that, like where they were the like super high, like they're just yeah. like they're speeding around. Yeah, so. it's an oval track. It's it's banked. It's really yeah. steep. Yeah, and um, these guys are huge. These are these are sprinters. These are these are cyclists that are like really super strong, super fast. And um, that was an Olympic event. And that's what I, I opened up that magazine. I saw these guys like, that's for me. You know, okay. They're on bigger bikes. These are big guys. And like, okay, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And I still didn't know that much about it. So I kept going until I was about 17. 17 was when I finally kind of wrapped it up. I was just like, I'm done with BMX bicycles. I want to get on to the road. I want to do this. And so um, I got my first road bike, and I started to race road. I was still racing as a junior. I was a junior cyclist, so under the age of 18. Okay. And I was getting my ass handed to me. <laughs> I really was. Just and a this, different world, It was world, such huh? a different world, yeah, because these are longer races. They're fast. BMX racing is like a 30-second race, and it just it's from a dead start, and then it's just a sprint, and then next thing you know it's over yeah these are these are much longer even like a 10 mile race at the time i was just suffering like a dog and it was just it was a different kind of fitness that i had to acquire and it was tough because i was actually in a region when i was this was when i was in boston and there were some very prominent some of the top junior cyclists in the country were stationed right where i was in boston and so i'd race against them every weekend and just get my ass handed that was probably the best thing for you though that it was because like if you were competing in a softer region an area where it wasn't as big of a deal you probably wouldn't have got as good as you did 
because the you wouldn't have had to. You know what I mean? But being around these guys, it's like, oh, I got to go that much harder, right? Exactly. One of the things that I learned at an, at an early age, and it, it correlates with what you just said, was the fact that you always want to train with people that are faster than you. That is right. how you get better. You don't want to show up and be the best one there training. You're not going to get better. Yeah, your you're ego just, might feel good, yeah, but you're not going to improve. It's not training. It's not what it's all about. It's not what's going to get you better to the next level, that type of thing. So Now, yeah. in competition, it's going to be fastest, it's, right? That's your goal. That's your <laughs> but, goal. But in training, you should never be fastest. And that's the thing, I think, you know, the one thing I experienced, too, is that the different levels of competition, whether it's a local race, a regional race, a state race, a national race, world, you know, your competition is right there with you. And there's only just a fraction of a second sometimes that's separating you from the top five in the world, yeah. the top ten in the world. And that's how tough it is. And that's how important every day of training is that you follow, you know, you do the best you can each time because somebody else in the world is doing the same exact thing, if not more. And that's what's going to separate you from either winning or losing. So how far did you go competitively with Velodrome? Um, I was I was doing pretty well. I um, when I was when I first started at seventeen, I spent basically again a year, a whole year of my life, just getting my ass handed to me. But I was getting better, and I just on a whim went to I. So I turned eighteen, and when I hit the age of eighteen, that's where I'm technically a senior. I'm not a junior anymore. Right. So when you're a senior in cycling, you're racing against everybody. I mean, every adult. It doesn't matter how old they are. Or oh wow! So you went into that whole new bracket. There's a whole new bracket for me. So I went to I went to I qualified for the U.S. National Championships in Seattle, Washington, in 1989, and um, I went there. And my event, my main event, was the one kilometer time trial, and that's a time trial where it's just that it's one kilometer on the bicycle. It's from a dead stop, and you just go as hard as you can for one kilometer. It's just a little over a minute long. And wow. It's one of the most grueling events in the entire Olympic Games. Jeez. In, one, in less than a minute. Isn't that well, crazy? just over a minute. And that's just what I mean. Over if, a if you can try it on your bike, if you can get on any bicycle or an indoor bike and just try to sprint absolutely as hard as you can for a minute, it's absolutely excruciating those last 20 seconds because, yeah. you know, you can do a 30-second sprint and be pretty well exhausted, but 30 seconds in, you're not even halfway there. you got to do it yeah. all over. you got to keep going as fast as you can. So that was the event that appealed to me and um, that I really wanted to excel in. And so I went there, and I actually got, I got fifth place, which meant that I was in the top five, and I'd actually qualified for the U.S. national team. And I beat out sixth place was a gentleman named Rory O'Reilly. Riley, he was a participant. He was the member of the 84 Olympic team oh, in wow. Los Angeles. And second place was uh, another member of the U.S. national team who had just completed. He, he competed in the Seoul Olympics in, in 88 in cycling. So I all, all of a sudden got kind of shot into a kind of an elite realm yeah, of I mean, athletes. You're going against these Olympians. And I was you're young. feeling pretty good about yourself. Yeah, and I was still 18 years old. And compared to these, these other these other um, athletes were well into their 20s, uh, later 20s, 30s. So, yeah. Um, so I was still 18. And so I, I actually got recognition uh, right away from the U.S. national team coaches. And they, uh, they allowed me to live and train at the Olympic Training Center, which was awesome. Oh, cool. Yeah, before that, I was able to, well, during that time, I had actually, um, you know, one of the things I had to do when I, when, I, when I finished high school, I had to figure out, you know, I wanted to go to college. And there's a little bit of a story behind that. In, um, in 1987, before I graduated, we had um, 
the crash of 87 in the stock market. Right. And I actually lost all of my college funding that my dad had been working on saving up oh, for me. No. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I was a little bit under the gun. And I was like, go like, get a scholarship. Son. Yeah, figure out something. Or you're just going to have to pay for it or whatever. And so and at that point, I said, well, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to go, and I'm going to take one year. I'm going to go to Europe, and I'm just going to try to make it happen in Europe. Because, again, Europe was still the number one place. Yeah, that was the number one place to train and race and try to see if I can go up against the best of the world and just try to see where I fall, you know, where, 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 what, you know, what possibility do I have with the sport and getting to that level. So, um, but then my dad uh, came back again and he said, hey, I've actually, I noticed that Penn State University has um, a cycling team and they're actually the current national champions in collegiate cycling. I'm like, really? I had no idea. And so we drove to Penn State, and I was able to get into Penn State with a, a scholarship, and I had money from the, the United States Cycling uh, Federation. I, I had gotten a scholarship money. I received scholarship money from that as well. So, so I went to Penn State in my freshman, sophomore year and competed in collegiate uh, track cycling okay. for Penn State. And Isn't that a funny thing? Like a little twelve-year-old kid falling in love with a BMX bike is now getting his college paid for exactly because he stuck yeah. with it and fell in love with it. Exactly, you know? and that's it's one of the few that's universities cool. where they even offer any type of program for cycling in general. Yeah, so I was re- and so and it was close to Boston, so it was close to proximity to home. Worked out awesome, and I was lucky enough um, in all the competitions that I did nationally for Penn State, I ended up with five collegiate national championship titles. I went to the University World Games in Majorca, Spain. I got to participate oh, from wow. that as well. And and so that kind of galvanized, too, again, my, my ability to try to say, okay, um, you know, I can, I can make it on the U.S. national team and keep trying to strive for more and more at that level here in the United States. So, um, so yeah, I was able to live and train at the Olympic Training Center and got to another level. And then being able to get ready, I was preparing for uh, the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. Okay. And then um, after that, after the, after the, well, the, basically the, the Olympic trials, I was, I was put on the alternate list. I just, I didn't, I didn't make the team. Okay. And so after that, I, you know, I was 21, I wasn't even 22 yet. And I just thought I was just washed up. Like it's over. Yeah. Okay. you, You try, you didn't make it. It's over. And, and and I didn't I just didn't really know what to do and so um, at the time I quit I completely quit never got on the bike and actually I got I had a girlfriend she had just graduated from a university called Tufts University up in Boston and so we were dating and then she, out of the whim she just says I'm my sister lives in San Diego so I'm gonna move to San Diego and I'm like huh San Diego and I was going to Boston College at the time uh-huh. and um, I like Boston College is an amazing education, but I just didn't really fit in. It's actually a very conservative school. It's, okay. very, it's a very private Catholic university. Oh, all right. And um, the classes, you know, it was, it was a great education, but I just I didn't really feel like felt like I fit in. So, so the opportunity to go to San Diego, I was like, hey. When you were looking for a fresh start, <laughs> you just kind of thrown in the towel. Yeah, that was kind of with, it too. Like, so but you did ten years, you know, from twelve to twenty two of like being in love with bikes and mm-hmm. cycling and everything and you just felt like once you didn't hit that olympic level it was just like 
I yep. need a break. I'm done. Like, or I'm like not, I just that was just, it. Like I'm I, not, I hit my pinnacle. That's it. That's it. Yeah. There's nothing left. There's nothing else to shoot for. No, so just give it up. When you were 17, I want to back up a little bit. Yeah. And you were just getting your ass handed to you, as you said. Yeah. What made you push through that year? As opposed to being like, oh, my God, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Like, I'm getting destroyed. Like, what made you, like, push through that to know that you could take it to the next level? Just, I, th- I had help from friends. I had, I had friends that I had developed in that sport as well. And uh, actually a couple of friends who had done the same transition from BMX to that, oh, you know, cool. to, to cycling as well. And they were, they were just telling me, don't worry, you know, I know you're getting your ass handed to I got my ass handed to me too. It's just, it's part of the, you know, this is a really hard sport. Like, it doesn't mean you're not Yeah, there. it doesn't mean you're not there. It's just, you gotta, you gotta pay your dues. You gotta pay your dues in the sport. And I did. And, and so that was, plus at the end of the day, I just loved it. I knew I could do better. I, I really liked the sport and, you know, I knew that. Slowly but surely, I was getting better, so I could see some light on the horizon yeah. in terms of just out of all the ass kicking that was going on. But when it came that. to the Olympic trials, you felt you were at your peak. That was where you all you could do, basically. And it was. Kind of a I actually got a flat tire during this during the event, and which was which really kind of slowed things down for me too. Yeah. And so all those things kind of came together, and I was just like, well, okay, it is what it is. You yeah. Know, I didn't. That this is the best I, it's going to get, and. There is no other chance. There's no second chances in this. So, and I was I was kind of fed up with cycling. The other thing too was at the time, and I don't even really mean to bring it up, but you know, athletics in general. And I think in this day and age, you know, what we're talking about in in that in that frame, what I was just uh, going back to in terms of the '92 Olympics, the early '90s, late '80s, and cycling. Um, there's always been a, a presence of drugs and sure. performance enhancement. Well, I think people think of Lance Armstrong, and yeah. the, you know, all the doping and exactly. black transfusions. And, and that brought it, to, yeah, I mean, that's Is that a similar time frame? I don't even know what years all that was going on. But That was, he was, he was later. He was a junior. He was, he's only a, a year younger than me. And so he... Um, he was a junior, and he was already an amazing athlete. You yeah. know, he had already just he was he was winning. He was just showing up in winning races. He barely had to pay any dues. He was just yeah. that good. And so um, that was a little bit more into the later '90s, early 2000 that he. He had already started to um, have tremendous success and then started getting recognition and actually bringing the sport of cycling to another level, which was great. Yeah. And I think then, you know, all the drug during his his time, what was it, 1999 for the next seven years after that when he consistently won all those yeah. Tour de France, that's where especially the European media was like, this guy's on drugs. And they kept every year trying to get him, get him, get him. Right. And they, they couldn't. And if anybody hasn't seen the documentaries um, Icarus on Netflix, have you seen that? I haven't, but I've heard should, of it. It's pretty good. Really? You should watch it. Really well done. It wasn't even supposed to be about... Um, anyway, anybody check it out. It just made me think about the Lance Armstrong stuff. You know, in, in his whole defense or whatever, he was just like, that's the world I'm competing in, though. Is exactly everybody's it. doing drugs. Ex- like, everybody is doing it. I can either bow out yeah. or I can play the game by the rules, in his mind, what people are doing. So you started seeing that even at your level. Was there, like, people actually coming to you? Like, hey, yeah. we need to, like... When you start doing these yeah. blood transfusions, when you start doing stuff, get you on things like there were you're not going to be competitive. Yeah, there were coaches during the time when I was on the U.S. national team saying, 
what are you doing in school? You're never going to be a world champion if you're in school. Why do you, you know, you need to get on a program. You're never going to be a world champion, Olympic champion unless you're on a program, you know, because everybody else is on a program. All these other top athletes throughout the world. And when you say program... Like a drug program. Okay. Yeah, a drug program. But that's a good way to say it without it's, saying get on the drug. It's just, right? it's just what, yeah, the program. You know, I think like, like a training program, but yeah. no, they're talking about a drug. And these were the, the U.S. coaches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For well, the national I mean, just, teams, just yeah, I mean, basically in general, yeah, members, um, you know, members of um, of that federation in cycling, yeah, they were they were basically saying that. And at the time, you know, again going back to the late '80s, early '90s, you know, we didn't have internet. Getting information about that type of thing, it was really it was really hard for anybody, you know, to really try. All you knew about drugs was, well, okay, there's steroids. Yeah, did you even know the program they'd put you on was illegal? Or oh, yeah. Was it, okay, so I that thought, was clear. I thought it was, they want me to get on a program so I can get caught and get suspended, and then I'm not a threat to any of the other current, you know, more prominent oh, okay. national who are older than me. I was still a teenager at the time. But so I, you didn't, did you participate in any of it? No, because like, I, I was like, so naive, and I just didn't, I was just like, well, that's, they want me to get on a drug program so I can get caught and get suspended and not cycle again. And number two... Um, you know, even at the again in that era, Lyle Alzado, for example, who, who was an admitted steroid user and died of a heart attack. Oh, know, well. that's um, that that type. That's where I was like, well, how can you take steroids and not get tested and not get not get caught and not have a heart attack? You know, all yeah, these it, things that again, there's so lack of information at the time. So I that's what I felt about drug use, and I just like, well, I don't need that. I'll just train harder and smarter. I'll just, you know, I don't, I can do it without drugs. And which so, is good. That's the attitude people should it have. Should be, it but should it wasn't be, the yeah. world you were competing in, really. It really wasn't. Well, I look back now, and at the time, I was still kind of naive. I knew these guys, like you know, one of the guys that I had competed against. Um, he had been caught and suspended, and he was only suspended for like six months and for, for blatantly being caught using uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Wow. And, but it was only like a six-month suspension. It was in the off-season. Which he so doesn't even like, miss anything. Yeah, it's like, like it was no... You know, so, and, that's, and he that's could still of, train during that six months, right? Just not compete? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so just, it's like... It's, it's no big deal. Slap on it the wrist. No you big know, deal. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the way it was at the time in cycling. And then... Um, one of the things that happened, and this is this not just in cycling, but in athletics in general, was throughout the 90s, there was, for example, Balco, which was a lab that was creating these type of, there was synthetic steroids, there's masking agents, all these type mm-hmm. of things. So it's basically at the end of the day, regardless of uh, what event you are in the Olympics or competing in, there's a list of drugs that there's the Olympic list. The cycling uh, federation has their own list of banned substances. So what you want to do is just not get caught with any of those substances. So there's a lot of these independent labs that will create masking agents that will mask. Mm -hmm. So you can go ahead and take those type of substances, but then take this and and that will mask it and then you won't get caught. Man, I don't know how much you know about the whole, like I said, the Icarus story with Lance Armstrong, but like, they they were the ones testing it were the ones hiding and providing it at the labs there in mm-hmm. Russia. Like it's crazy how intense it got, mm-hmm. like and how deceptive and and fully integrated. Like it was state sponsored doping mm-hmm. um, for for I mean not just Russia apparently, but but they were, even the labs were supposed to 
hide it were supporting it. Yeah, you know? I mean that's again, and as uh, you can just even take former Soviet Union, for example, when I was racing against the Soviets at the time during, they um, we we found out eventually that, for example, as young as ten years old, they would have. Um, fitness camp, and there would be actually be where they would take. He's young, air quoting that fitness yeah, camp fitness with air camp. quotes. It would just basically be a place where they would take kids as young as ten years old and put them through certain physical aspects and 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 testing, and you know just to see, hey, is this is this kid have any kind of natural ability or not? Yeah. And then you know we were told that they would actually test them for performance enhancing drugs too to see if they had a positive effect at ten years old. Yeah, because that's how they'll learn at a certain age. Like, okay, well this is a great athlete, but he actually tests negative when with performance enhancing drugs, so he's probably not going to be able to perform. He's not going to get the full benefit of those type of performance enhancing drugs as he gets older. So let's not pay attention to him. Wow. Um, so we've we definitely heard of stories like that. So it wasn't that bad in the U.S., but it was yeah, it was it wasn't. But once was, you got competitive and you were in there, it was almost an expectation. Yes, yeah, it definitely. I, I think basically it was these type of labs back in Eastern Europe and, and former Soviet Union. Those were those were run by the government. I mean, yeah. those were state agencies. Whereas here in the United States, it was you know it wasn't definitely run by the government. It was more that form of capitalism where an yeah. independent drug lab can come and say, "Hey, we can make money off of this." And that's one of the things that you'll see between. Just take Balco for example. Um, I have there's a couple of cyclists that were caught from using the Balco program. Um, Barry Bonds is yeah. very prominent, yeah. um, prominently known for for. Um, from being a customer of Balco's as well. Basically, at the end of the day, one of the things about Balco, too, and other independent labs like that, is that those type of performance-enhancing drugs are actually really expensive. I mean, it's really expensive. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a month. When that's what they do. Like you said, you know, in, in Russia, they're sponsoring it out of, like, a prestige for their country yeah. and stuff but these are just drug companies in america just trying to make money yeah you know they're yeah. not getting they don't really care if you win gold yeah. they just want to get their pockets lined yeah. it sounds like they're expensive and so you can think about you know who, well what kind of athletes can afford you know that type of it's program it's going to be a profession who's making millions of dollars a year or something like that so that's one of the reasons why um you know that that was definitely an issue too. Is that quite frankly, even if I wanted to get on a program, I don't think I could afford it. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have that kind of money. And so, that's not how you wanted just, to win. You're like, because when you're 17, isn't. you're like, I can get better and still win. But when you're 22 and everyone's doping, and you kind of hit your peak, you're like, am I going to be able to compete without that? And I don't want to compete with that. I don't want to compete like that. And I was just really scared more than anything else about the adverse health effects, the long-term health sure. effects for taking that. So that's what really scared me. I was like, no, there's, there's no way. So because well, you knew that guy that you said he had a heart attack or died. Yeah. You know, like, just why risk that when it's like not worth it? Exactly. Exactly. So I can look back now. And then when I see so much more information that I, that, um, that has been put out there in terms of, 
um, performance-enhancing drugs and certain time frames, certain eras where certain drugs were introduced. And I can definitely look back and probably see a few, you know, competitors in certain aspects where, yeah, it would make sense that they were probably on something yeah. like that. And that's just the way it is. So I, I guess, yeah, at the end of the day, I, I really chose my path because I was really naive. I didn't really understand anything about it. All I knew was that... Um, I really didn't want to. I didn't want to participate in anything like that that was going to have such an adverse effect on my long-term health. I was just. I didn't. It was too scary to me. That's smart, though. I feel like a lot of twenty-year-olds, nineteen-year-olds, they're not. They're not thinking that long-term. They're just like, what do I got to do to be the best right now? They're, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's guys who don't even compete and they're pumping steroids just to get bigger biceps in the gym, like for literally zero gain except for at the yeah. club that weekend or something, and, you know? But how, you have the perspective. You think that just came from, like, your upbringing? Obviously, your dad was pretty sharp and, like, could teach you. I mean, why, why did you have that perspective at 20 years old when you had been committing your 10 years of your life to this kind of stuff why don't you go I don't care I'll do whatever it takes like this won't happen to me yeah I didn't I didn't think that performance enhancing drugs helped that much I didn't think it was that like a night and day type of difference I just thought it was like for lazy people that didn't want to train and I definitely knew some people that were on that type of program that they didn't have to train or you know because that's what um, that's what the performance enhancing drugs were doing for example sometimes a normal athlete you know you can train hard one or two days and then you have to take a break you've got to give your body a rest so that you can gotcha. go back and train hard again and hopefully get better so in your mind it wasn't taking to another level it's just cutting corners yeah it was like, I can just do it the right way yeah and there's there's some there's some athletes that take performance enhancing drugs they can go hard for like eight nine days straight because sure. that's what the drugs are doing. They're not wearing down their body. They're not feeling it. Uh, and that's that's a big part of it. They're not feeling it. They're not feeling the pain and suffering that others who aren't taking that. Yeah. So, um, you know, to me, I just, I didn't, I just, I couldn't do it. I just, and plus I hate needles. I absolutely hate needles. So I couldn't just fathom having yeah. needles stuck in me. Oh, every that's good. Day. Like, so all those type of things kind of, kind of fell into place and um, kind of, Pick the path that I, I chose. So you, so you stayed clean. You made a move. You went out to California with your girl. Mm-hmm. You uh, said goodbye to the cycle for yep at least a while, if a not while. for good. Yeah, and, uh, I went back. I went to San Diego, and at first, all I wanted to do was surf, and that's all I did. I just surfed. I loved just that. for fun, not yep. competitive. Nope. Just like just wanted. Finally, to surf. got a break. You can yeah. be young, you know. And not, it was kind of it. Yeah, there was one probably one of the most horrible days ever. Um, that I've experienced as an athlete was there's one day at the Olympic Training Center where it was, it's in Colorado Springs and it was January and so already in the morning there had been like two feet of snow that had fallen on the ground and my coach his name was Chris Carmichael at the time he, you know, we thought okay, well there's all this snow, we're going to have to train indoors we're already getting our indoor trainers and going to the room, he's like, no, get your gear on you're going out there and he was just in a bad mood or something. <laughs> and so we had to go out for like 60 miles in this two feet of snow, blizzard conditions. It was absolutely horrible. I was freezing to death the whole time. And I just got back and I just made it up to my room. And I couldn't even go. I was so freezing cold. I couldn't even get my you clothes can't on close to go your, eat. your fingers. You couldn't do like, anything. Uh... But I turn on the TV and there's MTV Spring Break. 
you know, <laughs> and I'm just like, God, I'm missing it. Yeah, I mean, is this really worth it? This is, oh, uh, so that, that was horrible. And so, yeah, there's a lot of times like that where there's definitely been a lot of sacrifice in terms of, like, I mean, even as, even in high school, I never really went to proms and dances and things like that. I always had bike races or something was going on. And, and I kind of went into my college years, too, you know, and, and, and into my 20s. Just, there was always a, quite frankly to this day there's still a sacrifice that I make pretty much every day in terms of those things that I could be doing but I'm kind of choosing to do what I do yeah. and and not doing those other things and which doesn't bother me but it is it's a choice it's just you know whatever whatever drives you you know you'll find a solution so that you can try to do it the best you can so why why sacrifice the fun and the the social aspects of life and some of those things for athletic competition because I, I don't think it's just because you want to win I, I, I feel like it's it's be, you want to become a kind of person that you want to become I'm, but like well, tell me in your words like why why make all the sacrifices because there, there is still a, there's a there's a big social aspect too in terms of when you when you're especially again in dragon boat which is a, a team event so I train with a lot of teammates and you know we do races together we train together so we're already you know friends and kind of like a family and in, in, in to a degree so cool. and then when you go to what I like most is I like going to world world class competitions where I'm competing against other other just other athletes from around the world and you get to know them you talk to them and you get to kind of experience a little bit more about the world in general and you know in, in terms of um how they do things over in germany different than how they do things in london and isn't that so cool like it, it just changes your perspective of life you know so many people live in such a little niche or a bubble mm -hmm. you know and they're like oh i'm from this state and you know yeah. they they don't really know what else is out there but when you can see the world through different people's eyes throughout the whole world right it changes how you view everything in a really good way I it does think. it does and that's that's the whole thing is that so you're there to race and you're trying to win but at the same time you're you're meeting all these people from all over the world and you're learning a lot culturally mm -hmm. you know just that experience in, in in general so there's all these things that come together that that's I, I enjoy that. I really do enjoy that a lot. And yeah, so, I think that's huge. Like that's something me and my wife. We have two little kids, and we mm -hmm. talk about we want to take our kids to, to travel the world and have these experiences. So they can see there's so much more than middle school or high school yeah. life that they think is such a big deal. You get all these right. kids, you know, killing themselves nowadays because of a Facebook post or crazy things. That, sure. And I, when, sure. when I see that, it's it's heartbreaking. It's sad, but I just feel like. Their world is so narrow mm -hmm. for them to think that one thing that, okay, my life's over. Right. But if they could travel the world and, and be around champions and, and different cultures. Do you, have, do you have kids? Yeah, I have one son. He's 16 years old. Do you take him with you when you travel at all? Um, sometimes. He, he, he either wants to travel with me or he doesn't. Yeah. He actually, you know, 16 years old, he, um, he's, he's definitely got an athletic... Um, base in terms of not just from me but my wife as well my wife was a um, she's a former world record holder in high diving oh cool she was yeah she she was she jumped off a platform uh, higher than any other woman ever in germany wow. this was back in you know back in the late 80s so you know she was doing a lot of things like that when she was young and we met as cyclists um, at Olympic trials for for 96 for the games here in Atlanta. Oh, cool. And so I got her 
And she was cycling as well? Or she, she was, was cycling. Diving? She was alternate for uh, the women's sprinting uh, event at the nice. time. So after the Olympics, I got her, I was able, we started to, to date a little bit, and then I was able to convince her to move to San Diego with me. And that's where we, so we got married in San Diego. We had my son in San Diego, and then nice. we moved out here. So my son, he actually was, was kind of interesting. He's always been interested in sports, and he's, he's participated in some things. But then there was one day, he asked me, he said, hey, I would like, I would like to race my bicycle. And I said, okay, we'll think about that. Yeah. We'll talk about that. And I just kind of let it sit for a little bit. And he never really came back and, hey, come on, I thought we were doing a bike race. I didn't. I you didn't, just want to see how serious he was? Or no, did, I didn't want to jump on I didn't want him to, oh, I didn't want him to push thing. him. I didn't, want to, I didn't want him to be a cyclist. I didn't want him to have to go through a lot of what yeah. I had gone through. Gotcha. Just in terms of, in, in general, I honestly think that cycling, it's very hard. It's not an NCAA sport, so it's right. not supported by so many colleges. Um, it's kind of frowned upon the all, all the things about cycling and the, and the performance enhancing drugs, things like that. They all kind of tied in. I was like, I don't want him to get into that. He was actually a very successful swimmer at the time. Like, stick with swimming. You know, that's a that's a great NCAA friendly sport. There's all kinds of opportunities in swimming. It's an Olympic event, of course. You know, so yeah. there's all these different avenues that I thought. And quite frankly, I wish it, now that I know what I know, I wish I had gone back and had either tried swimming or even canoe and kayak at the time, you know, when I was in my younger years and, and tried to go for the Olympics and maybe some of those sports. But I was just, I was so tied into bike racing. I did love it at the time. So, yeah. but that's kind of the transition. That well, and it turned you into a professional athlete. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost, you, you kind of, at this point, probably take it as a given because that's just been your whole life. It but is, yeah. if it wasn't something you loved, you might have not stuck with it and then you might not have ever been a prof- athlete, you know what I mean? Exactly. Had that be part of your world, so. Exactly. And that's a big part of what happened after the 96 Olympic Games was, um, you know, I, my my girlfriend at the time, my, my current wife, she was living, we were living together in San Diego, and one day she said, we, we had this little condo right on the beach in Del Mar, it's beautiful, and she said, I want primary colors in my kitchen, I want like these blues and reds I said okay I'll paint the kitchen (laughs) so one morning I was painting the kitchen and um, I had moved all the we had this big porcelain water cooler and things like that moved them all to the center of the kitchen so I could paint the walls and just stupid move I being my height and my size I should have gotten a, a nice industrial strength La, you know, stool or ladder, something of that nature, and I just use the the dining room chair yeah. <laughs> to paint the walls. And I'm painting, and sure enough, the chair just collapses. It breaks, oh, and no. I go flying into the middle of the kitchen where the porcelain water cooler was. The porcelain water cooler falls onto the tile floor, and a big chunk of porcelain almost takes out my left foot. Oh my gosh. So it hits your foot? Yeah, it goes through my foot. It just slices Cuts right it. through. Oh my gosh. And um, cut all my ligaments, everything. And um, that was. <laughs> so I had to. Um, I didn't, couldn't even get to a phone, and I had to get to one of my neighbors and, you know, say, hey, and he rushed me to the hospital. And then there's all this 
blood all over the kitchen floor oh and water, gosh. and my wife wasn't there. And so I just had to leave this note like, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm not dead. <laughs> I'm not dead. She exactly. comes home, looks like a murder yeah, she scene. She's freaking out, yeah. So that, what that did was that put me into rehab, and I really couldn't even ride a bicycle or anything. Wow. And she had already gotten an, an attraction. She had already started to participate in Outrigger Canoe, which is a form of ocean racing for canoe and kayak uh-huh. out in San Diego. And I got into that because I needed something where now I can just use my upper body and my foot is kind of useless at the time. So, um, and that's kind in, of what led us into, into the aquatic sports. Okay. okay, that's how it all started from that. Yeah, and from then, you almost losing your foot. <laughs> yep. Wow. And so I started that, and sure enough, once again, I just I paid my dues, and I I I, I made my. Did my, you love it right away, or was it kind of like, well, this is all I can do, so I guess when I'll she, enjoy it. She started participating in it before I did, and I thought it was the most boring thing ever. I was like, <laughs> hey, you can have it. I mean, it just it didn't appeal to me at all until I actually got into the boat and into the ocean, started racing, and and it was like, yeah, hey, this is this is fun, this is cool. So, and then sure enough, there's all of these events, there's all these races. And that that opened up the door for canoe and kayak in general that I just never even fathomed. Did you like to compete? Yeah. You I, liked I like to compete. I like to compete in terms of having goals. I can't imagine, like, for example, quite frankly, here we are at Lifetime. This is a great facility, but... To come here every day and not have some type of goal as to why you're here. I mean, you can have personal goals and all, and that's awesome. But for me personally, I can't come here every day and just keep kind of doing the same thing over and over. I'll get tired. I'll just I'll stop. I'll, yeah. I'll do it and then well, I'll stop. Because and that's I don't something have I, a, there's a difference goal. between working out and training. Yeah. And when training, it's for something specific. And that's why I always say when I talk to people or coaching, me, I say like, you should. You should always have something you're looking forward to, like a fun, like vacation, something to like enjoy in life. Yeah. You should always have something you're training for. Yeah. Even if it's a small little like you know, five K or ten K if you're just starting or anything, there's always have something you're training for, but it gives a little purpose to the pain that you go through every day working That's out. That's what it is for me. I mean, I I could never I just I can't come here and just exercise. I have to have some kind of goal as to why and that I mean, my whole physicality, what it is, it's it this is just me following the training schedule they give me, the nutrition and diet that they give me. It's, you know, I look like this just because this is what I need to be able to try to paddle a boat as fast as possible. That's what right. it all equates to at the end of the day for me. So, yeah, that's 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 always given me that goal to keep going. And I guess here I am at 48, and I'm still... I'm lucky enough, I'm fortunate enough that I'm st- at the age that I'm at, and I'm still at a certain level where I'm actually, you know, I'm either beating or right there with kids that are much younger than I was going to say so 48 is that old for dragon boat is that normal it is older. or is that yeah, like it's older it's older it's not normal i mean there's, there's all different age divisions too in dragon boat which is oh, cool okay. so you can do that um, but at the end of the day the the, the the top seed the senior or premier type of athletes uh, they're primarily younger some somewhere in uh, in my age bracket but gotcha. it's um I think one person actually came up to me and said, "Well, hey, you know, at age 48, what do you think? Um, what do you think you've dropped off on the most? You know, what what part of your athleticism has really dropped off?" I said, "You know, quite frankly, I don't feel like any of it is really." gone off the cliff Mm -hmm. and I think that's what I've been able to do I've just been able to maintain whereas some sometimes some other people when they get to a certain age if you just stop 
it will. It'll just fall off. Yeah. It'll just fall off quick. And well, it's funny because life, is, like, we're created by the habits we create. Mm-hmm. You know what sure. I mean? Like, we yeah. are a product of the habits. Yeah. And you, you, from such young age, getting to train at the, you know, the U.S. Training Center and all that stuff, it's not like you just created these habits yeah. that it looks like you've carried over into every aspect of whatever sport you're in. You're just like, you were just saying, like, I'm just eating this way and following the program, like, you have a habit of doing that. It and is a habit. You've, it's yeah. set to such strong foundation that, you know, even if, you know, late 40s, you're just still just sticking to those habits you created throughout your whole life. And it really does. And, and it shows, you know. Yeah, and it's, I, you know, there's definitely a benefit to being healthy at, at, at any age, but particularly at my age where, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to be as healthy as possible, yeah. you know, and, and not falling off as much as as um, as as that has happened for some people just because they haven't, you know, I, I, I just, again, I can, I can appreciate how hard it is to just be able to come to a gym like this, for example, and just exercise just without having any kind of goal, really. It's just, it's hard. And for me, um, having a, having a program that's already written out for me and having a goal like world championships that are coming up in Thailand in August or my indoor rowing world championships coming up in Paris, France in, in February of 2020, that really kind of keeps me, I, I, know what, I know what it takes when I show up to world championships at that level, what it takes to win. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I've shown up to some other major events before where I wasn't at my fullest potential and it sucks. It's yeah. awful. You've already lost. You've already shown up, and you pretty much already lost because you didn't give everything you could have to be at your best at that particular time. So for me, if I'm going to any other type of world championship competition at this point, I want to definitely make sure that I'm at least in my best and I don't have any regrets. That's awesome. So, so you've got, you said Thailand in August, mm-hmm. and that's for Worlds. That's for, for Worlds and Dragon Boat. And Dragon Boat. And, and then you're doing indoor rowing in... Yep. Rowing, yeah, rowing has two seasons. They have an indoor season, which is a lot of just the indoor rowing equipment that you see here. We yeah. race on those types of And that's just solo. Machines. That's not teams. That's solo. That's exactly. Just, that's what I love You just about sit it. on a machine indoor and just row and go hard. Every one of the indoor rowers have computers on them. So mm-hmm. they can tell you, you know, so you can dial them in for a 500-meter race or, or a 2,000-meter yeah. race. 2,000 meters is the most popular. That's the one that's really worldwide. Did you say that was in most, Paris? The world, yeah, the world, the world championships were here in California um, this year, and next year they're going to be in Paris, France, in 2020. So, yeah, and you're going to that. Yep, you've already so, qualified yep. and everything. That's I'm awesome. I'm we'll good, have to so. keep an eye out. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it, and I've never competed in indoor rowing at that level, so it's definitely something that um, that I'm looking forward to because it's different. And it is a little bit different training, and that's a, that's another part of it too. Is that the training that I go into Dragon Boat and getting ready for World Championships there? I'm gonna have to make some adjustments. So it's not like I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing over and over. But that's probably and good and too months. to shake it up. Like you have if to, you, you know, it keeps your mind sharp, you your muscles to. sharp. If it does, it doesn't become too mundane. So yep. what's like, you know, for I mean, you're 48, so mm-hmm. I mean, we, we're talking. Th- you know, 30, 25 years of competitive athletic peak performance, you know, what's some life lessons you could kind of take away from it all? Looking back and like the advice you could give to people and not everybody's going to be a world-class athlete and compete in the Olympics or mm-hmm. worlds. But I, you know, one thing you already pointed out is, is, is actually it can help to do a collegiate sport that is, you know, 
what you know yeah. sponsored and everything like yeah. that so you can just do a little more with it mm-hmm. um, but what other advice would you have for people it's definitely you know whatever if you find a sport that you like it, it definitely starts at the grassroots on the local level and mm-hmm. just participate and the more that you participate and the more that you the, your enthusiasm builds for it don't be afraid to take that next step. Go to a regional race. Go to a race or, or a national championship. Just just put it all put it all out there and just go to national championships with nothing to lose and just try to do your best. And you'll be surprised. You might be surprised exactly at the outcome. And that that's what can lead. I think there's a lot of people that they they participate in a sport and they're like, yeah, it's fun. But they never really even take the chance at going to another level. Sure. It could be cut out of fear, and I understand it can be out of fear. Like, wow. When you know, they those... think they're just being realistic, like, oh, well, I can I never can't. compete yeah. at that level. Exactly. So exactly. I'm not even going to like play with that thought. Competing at that level is automatically going to make you better. You're going to compete at that level. You're going to come back to these local races, whatever you've been doing. You're going to find yourself better already. So go play in the bigger arena. Even if you don't intend to stay there, think you yeah. can participate. Because then in the lower arena, everything's going to be better. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. I like that. That's super cool. And, and like I say, I mean, you, when you look at it on a grander scale just of life, like you're competing in these big athletic things. But at the end of the day, you get to be almost 50 years old and healthier and fit than most people. You're lively. You're active. You can do whatever you want. When a lot of people think, oh, if you get old, you get fat, you slow down. And because you're competing in a bigger arena, when you go down to the everyday life, it's like, yeah. that's better too. You know I what do. I mean? I do. I never think, I hate even mentioning age. Like, oh, well, I, I like anytime, I, oh, that's not bad. For, I hear somebody say, well, that's not bad for an old guy. And they're talking about themselves. I'm like, what are you what doing? You know, what is that all about? I never think of my age. I, I just don't. Uh, I just think about my performance. You know, you either do it or you don't. Yeah. And that's really what it boils down to. So, um, yeah, people use too many scapegoats. Oh, well, you know, I'm young or, oh, I'm in college, I'm busy or, oh, now I'm old. You know, so there's always yeah. going to be like something that can distract you or make yeah. you don't, have a reason to not be as good as you could be. Yeah, don't let that happen. You know, just keep doing, you know, do what, do what drives you and do, do what, do what, you know, not only for yourself. I mean, things are different now than they were 20, 30 years ago, of course, because I have a son, I have a wife, yeah. marriage, all those things. And so that's, that's part of the balance. And that's so. So for me to be able to still dedicate the time to that, well, and you work this, like you're not getting paid big money to no, compete. Not like, at all. You're a, you, at you're, all. you 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 sell uh, what is it? You know the I LED big, screens, LED big, big jumbotrons for stadiums. You know, so you're still working. Yeah, I sell full time. You know, it's not well. like you're getting paid sponsored stuff to do this you know but you find that balance because you you love it and you feel it's a benefit i did you know when i was younger i had that and it was all about me It was very selfish you know part of my life in terms of it was it was just all about me you know because it was all up to me there was nobody else to depend on so i had sponsors and i just i trained all day and that was great and so now i just I'm, i'm able i train with the amount of time that i have and then everything else is dedicated to my career and my family you know and i think that's a big i actually heard roger federer make a really great statement um if you're if you're a fan of tennis and if you watch roger federer through his younger years just dominant and then as he got older you know he started falling off he wasn't always winning he's getting you know uh, seconds or thirds or not even making it to the finals whichever and he actually made a statement saying that you know in my older years i did have to make some lifestyle adjustments just 
lifestyle adjustments, you know, the, the amount of social time I have outside of my home and yeah. the amount of rest that I get. And it's really the same for me. Um, I, I definitely don't really go out to bars at all or anything like that. Or quite frankly, I don't have too many just friends that I call up like, Hey, you know, let's go out and do this or let's, you know, let's go out for the weekend and do something or, you know, something with the guys. And I yeah. don't do that. The only like that doesn't, um, that I don't have a need for that is because, quite frankly, when I go out to train, I'm I'm with other people that I like already. Sure, you know it's, it's, it is. You've that got your aspect. team that you're training with. Yeah, so it's important in my age to just um, to definitely not take part in and many other 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 social. I think definitely social facets that maybe other people my age are participating in, and that's a part of the sacrifice. But that's mm-hmm. okay for me. Because I do, you know, I still see that there's a large social aspect. The social aspect here at Lifetime Athletic or the social yeah. aspect that I, that I experience when I'm in the water with teammates or competitors, quite frankly. You know, things like that. So I'm not, I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. It's just different than other lifestyles. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's awesome because life is just a compounding effect of, of the habits you create, yeah, you know, and true. so that, that's why I say, you know, they say age is a number. I say age is just the compounded effect of your habits. Yeah, it's true. And, and if you're just going to the bar and drinking every weekend, you know, it's probably what you're going to be doing at 50 and 60 and yeah. it's going to show and your health's going to show. Right. But if you can build the social aspect and the fun aspect and the travel and the cultural expenses and, and your yeah. family and get it all tied into one, you know, I just did my very first, uh, little triathlon sprint on oh, cool. Sunday yeah. and and it was fun you know but it's cool because my wife and kids are out there too and it'd be you know so I was able to combine yeah. the family and the training and make it all in one if you can do that with your life it's that's uh that's a beautiful way to live life it is. you know it's what awesome. I mean so that, that's awesome Davey I think it's inspirational so many times I think we sell ourselves short of what's possible but if we just go for it and and reach out and just like say compete at a bigger level, a bigger arena, even if you have no idea if you can do it, yeah. And what and then maybe you maybe you're good at it. maybe you fall in love with it and you catch the bug and and you can actually reach a whole nigh, higher level than you ever yeah. expect. You'll never know unless you try. I mean the, that old adage. It really is yeah. true. I mean, give it a shot. Don't be afraid to to take it to that level and at least try it. And you can try it. And if it wasn't for you, then it wasn't for you and just keep doing what you love at whatever level it is but um don't be afraid to go out there and and not only just give it your all but give it your best at um whatever level you think you can achieve i love it man so how do we how do we keep track of you if we want to see uh how you do in worlds and and see uh 2020 paris and all that i can post things on my facebook page it's really only social media i know i should probably have more i don't have instagram and things like that but i do have a facebook page so i i and i don't post that much on it but i'll post um if i'm if i'm at world championships and and certain um achievements that i might get at world championships something like that so i'll I'll keep all things things posted on my facebook page well that's exciting well thanks for doing this man this is super fun and appreciate and uh, i love just being able to see the world from a different perspective not every day do we get to hang out with a you know a world competitive athlete so that's awesome (laughs) well everybody at the gym loves seeing you training there we all feel a little cooler when you're around no that's cool (laughs) i appreciate it no that's that's just just trying to do what i can with what i got so that's our show hope you enjoyed it make sure you subscribe so you can get notified every time we come out with a new show they're not necessarily regular so that's the best way to know when the new one comes out and our charity partner as always is charity vision international 
a nonprofit organization focused on restoring curable sight impairment in people of developing nations. Guys, they give sight to the blind. They've created a system that allows them to actually build sustainable clinics across the world where locally trained doctors perform surgeries to correct vision for people, literally giving them sight. This surgery should cost way more than it does, but because of years of infrastructure, strategic partnerships, and keen business acumen, they've got the cost down to get this, just 25 bucks. That's right, it only costs 25 bucks to give someone sight. All the costs around the company are funded by a side company, so 100% of your donation goes straight to the surgeries. I've looked a long time to find a charity that makes a big difference and it does it in the right way, sustainably, and I'm happy that I found Charity Vision. Go check them out, charityvision.net. You can even get on Venmo right now and be able to donate 25 bucks and give someone sight today.